Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, December 20th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, coming to you this week from the Iodine State. Today we're taking a special angle on chum salmon. We've got Jesse Morin, adjunct professor at University of British Columbia's Institute for the Oceans and Fisheries. We've also got Michelle George. Both are from the tsleil Nation, and we really wanted to extend a warm welcome. This is going to be an interesting and a little bit of a different episode because we're basing it both off of a species and a very interesting paper. The authors, two of whom we have here today, are investigating sex-selective salmon harvesting, essentially an early form of fisheries management by pre-contact indigenous peoples around British Columbia. I found this article a real treat to read because the investigation was so multidisciplinary. They used techniques from archaeology, genetics, ethnography, and even traditional fishery science, among others. Now, we're living in a time where increasingly people from outside of scientific careers and disciplines want to be able to read and understand science for themselves, but often technical jargon is a barrier. So if you're a teacher or a student listening to this, or if you're just someone who wants to increase your scientific literacy, I'd suggest going and reading this because it's sophisticated science, but it's easy to read. I just think this was a great piece of literature, and I'm really excited to get to talk to the two authors about it a little bit more. So I share Guy's excitement about learning some of the different ways of knowing that are presented in this article, um, ways of knowing the past and ways to inform the future. And I guess first things first, could either or both of you describe what a chum salmon looks like when they return to freshwater to spawn, including any differences between males and females that might be important to kind of inform this conversation and also give us just a little bit of grounding in this region and what the landscape and rivers are like. So if we imagine this environment, you know, it's Bird Inlet is, is where we're talking about, which is in the northern part of the city of Vancouver. Um, and it's I think it's the most southerly fjord uh, on the west coast of uh, North America. So uh, on one side of the inlet, it's very steep mountain canyons with little uh, steep rivers tumbling into them. And then on the south side of the inlet, it's sort of like a more flatter plain, rolling hills. And then you've got the Fraser River right there, you know, one of the biggest rivers in Canada. And so this little corner of British Columbia here on the Salish Sea, you know, it was occupied for at least 10 to 14,000 years by Coast Salish people in the past. In archaeologically, we can see really clearly by about 3,000 years ago, that, that end, the eastern part of Burrard Inlet has been filled in with indigenous villages and people living off the, the marine resources there especially. So we find the remains of these big villages, lots of shell built up and then and the salmon bones and herringbone. And so... Uh, we find evidence of uh, of a large number of people living almost entirely off marine foods in this environment. So very stable way of life, harvesting salmon, shellfish, herring, hooligan, uh, seabirds, and all sorts of stuff like that. So that just sets a little bit of the, the background, like a geographical background and cultural background. Um, and then so Chum, you know, this area, cultural anthropologists have always calls this area the, the salmon area, right? Because people ate so much salmon, it was the defining feature of their culture. You know, salmon was incredibly important, sort of like bread to Europeans or rice to East Asians, right? This is a staple food that people are eating more or less day in, day out. You know, we know this because we find tons and tons of salmon bones in these sites, and we can analyze the chemistry of the people, the bones of the people too, and see that they've got, their bones are full of marine protein, right? Like 95% marine protein. 
but archaeologically, we can't tell salmon from salmon, really. They all look like salmon bones. Some are bigger, some are smaller. So if you're very careful and you measure them, you can sort of organize them into two size classes, bigger and smaller, and sort of guesstimate what species those are. In chum salmon are something that haven't really obtained a lot of archaeological interest for whatever reason. I think perhaps it's because of the dominance of the Fraser sockeye. You know, we're thinking about like 20 and 50 million river going or fish going up that river. But chum have a really important story to tell. And, and so chum, when they return, they're the last salmon to return to their, their spawning streams at the end of the year. So in here in Brighton, that was that probably late October, November, Michelle, when they start coming back up. Um, and they're a big fish, a big lean salmon. I think that they're the second biggest salmon and quite low fat content. So they're perfect for smoking and drying, right? They last for a long time through the winter. As they get approach their, their natal streams, they start to change color. The males are a bit bigger than the females, as is. And then uh, they start to undergo these changes. These, I think the males get these red stripes, sort of like a tiger on their side, and then their jaw gets hooked for biting and fighting, perhaps, as they're, as they're doing their stuff on the way back up there. So they look really different. They look really different from one another. And we've got a great image in our paper there of just boy versus girl. Um, and it's the sort of thing, if you're standing at a clear stream or river looking into you know a, a pool of salmon, of a chum salmon, you see one type versus another type, like... Um, it's, it's it's quite an immediate uh, difference. Yeah, they get that that hook jaw is really something I always kind of key in on when I see them. It's something that stands out. It's they're a really cool looking fish with their markings. So that was a nice description. Thank you. We talked with Andy Bassich earlier this fall about fall chum salmon and the importance to indigenous communities along the Yukon River, which you know crosses Alaska and into Canada. And I, I think Michelle, you know, Howard. Chum, could you just describe a little bit more how chum are important to the Tsleil-Waututh people in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest today? And maybe just talk a little bit more about how oral history helps span the present and the past connections to these fish. So chum, like uh, Jesse mentioned, is good for smoking, which is a really important preservation practice for First Nations in general. So that is something that would carry you through the seasons until the next salmon fishery or hunting or being able to pack it tightly and accordingly. So some places have a smoking site set up by your fishing weir. And in order to have a productive harvest, you would smoke your fish on site so that you weren't transporting so much resources in your canoe. And because some First Nations don't live by salmon-producing rivers, that became a trade economy. You'd hike into farther reaches and trade your goods. And even today, currently, we still do those practices and still have technically those trade routes. I have family up and down the Fraser River, and depending on what family, we have access to different things. Some of my family has access to Ooligan and other fisheries, and we have access to crabs and prawns. So there's still a lot of traditional trading that goes on in between First Nations communities. But what I'd like to highlight is that it's technically family. My traditional ways point me to blood ties and not boundary lines. So traditional practices are still being done. The importance of fisheries is very important, not only for harvesting but sustainability chum was really important for thousands of years we can say that with full confidence absolutely important for thousands of years and right now you know slaywatas traditionally the last few few decades are getting a lot of sockeye from the fraser river and some chinook as well 
And, and those stocks are completely imperiled right now. They're going down and down every single year. And I don't know if Slavitoth has got a sockeye allocation over the last couple of years. So the sockeye is off the table, really, and, and the Chinook's definitely off the table. So I think, you know, this is back to the future sort of stuff. I think Slavitoth starts needs to start looking very seriously at focusing on this chum fishery because that's what they've got. All right. So I'm curious how these people that lived around Bird Inlet would selectively harvest the males over the females. Why did they do that? And what techniques were they using that allowed them to select for males preferentially? So in your mind, you just imagine that we've got these villages sort of on the southern part of Burrard Inlet. And there's some little creeks and, and streams near there. But we suspect that they were doing the major fisheries up at, at the top of Burrard Inlet called Indian River. That's where the biggest fishery is now. And that's where all the Slavitoth oral histories describe people going to. And there's another reserve, two reserves up there that were defined as a fishing station. So so if you ever talk to Slavitoth people, they say, well, that's where we go to get chum. And that's where I've always got to go to get chum and that's where we will always go to get chum as well and so it's a smaller river you know it, it's not big by any stretch of the imagination it's clear water it's, it's rolling a relatively steep gradient out of the mountains and in in more recent slavery to history they, they set nets there to catch them overnight and you can set a net across the river and scoop up 100 fish in a night but in the past i'm quite certain that they built weirs like wooden fence enclosures across the river with stakes driven into the substrate there and then a lattice sort of attachment basically impeding the, the access of the salmon upstream and guiding them into little basket traps or, or pins. And if you imagine the fish are funneled forward into a little pin and then they get into a pin and they can't get out, you just walk up there with a spear or a dip net and you can see the males and you just spear the males and toss them up. And so then the question is, why would you selectively harvest males over females? And I think there's two really good reasons for that and one builds on the other. So first, the they're bigger and they're meatier. So if you're taking more males out of the out of the system, you can actually take more food out of that system without diminishing future returns, right? You maintain stable populations for the next generation. Now, I guess the other interesting thing about it is you can do that on purpose or you can do that by accident, right? Even if you're only selectively harvesting the males because they're bigger, the net result is you can still take more out of that system. I don't think it was by accident. I think people knew exactly what they were doing because they're managing that river there or those series of rivers for, you know, dozens and hundreds of generations. So I think they knew exactly what they were doing. Michelle, you're part of the Slaywatooth Nation. I'd love to hear what you know about the intentional management of salmon using the techniques that Jesse just described. The techniques that Jesse just described are like family teachings and family history that have been passed on through many generations. And I have family across the territory. Our people were so smart that you pull a salmon from the river and they could tell which tributary they went to. And this applied to almost all salmon species. And our families had protocol on what salmon and where they could fish. I have family that even recalls being able to fish sturgeon a certain way and have it actually released back into the waters and they'd live to be harvested another day. So the family teachings and connections to salmon are really strong. And a lot of people believe that our family were like doctors related to the knowledge of salmon by the colors of the skin to the cycle of life and understanding exactly what Jesse pretty much just said. 
how you're able to harvest more males. And if you let the females live, they'd give you more fish. And that's like connected to traditional teachings and just cultural understandings of the land and our salmon family. So being able to have that cultural understanding and then have someone like Jesse translate it or make it scientific proof is amazing. Yeah, it is really cool how you have this traditional information being passed down generation to generation and then being able to actually, you know, confirm it. I, I think that's really neat. Jesse, could you go into a little bit more depth on the paleogenetic techniques that you're using to understand the, the actual past fishing techniques and management? That definitely sounds like a question for a geneticist, and I am not a geneticist. I'm an archaeologist, so we had a great team of geneticists from SFU, including my brother. But really, we're looking at uh, mitochondrial DNA because it's small segments and it's relatively easy to extract. In Donya's lab there at SFU, Donya Yang, he, uh, he developed a technique to, to identify the species of salmon from the mitochondrial DNA. So that was new science in like uh, 2005 or something like that. And now we've got a number of studies who've used those techniques in various locations of BC to identify the species. So building on that, identifying um, the male chromosome in the mitochondrial DNA. So he can identify that. And so uh, when we when we, we have, we were successfully able to extract the DNA, we can tell the male versus female relatively straightforwardly now. So, where are you actually finding these bones and which bones are you finding? I, I assume you're not just walking out like, ah, there's a salmon bone. They're, they're pretty small and fine. Are you digging a pit? How do you find these little bones? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. So rather than me digging them, I, I sort of went to the archives in the museums and the institutions of where people have undertaken excavations over decades and they bag them all up as they excavate them, excavate through hand by hand with little trowels and little brushes and, and whatnot. And the bones, they're primarily vertebrae. Theoretically, the DNA is in all the bones, but the, these geneticists have focus on the vertebrae and, and whole vertebrae as well, too. You know, fish bones are delicate little things, uh, but sometimes, especially with enough shell around them, it makes a nice, nice alkaline sort of soil matrix and they stay relatively intact. So, so that a 3,000 year vertebrae can feel pretty much like a two hundred, you know, a two year old or, or two month old vertebrae. So we look for whole centrum and they bust them open and just take a little tiny sample from the inside. We do find ribs and head bones, whatnot, but vertebrae, I guess, more robust. They just preserve better. And so, you know, we go through these layers of previous excavations and we find certain layers of interest. And, you know, the, this research is trying to look at across space and across time. So we tried to sample different stratigraphic layers at different depths, knowing that the older layers are at the bottom and the newer layers are at the top. And we had a series of radiocarbon dates from also those layers as well, too. So we knew what time frame we're dealing with, which each sample. So I didn't have to undertake any additional excavation for this. This was just going to stuff uh, excavated in, in really the 70s and 80s, a little bit more recently as well, too. And just trying to extract as much information as we could, right? Like doing archaeological work is a destructive practice, right? Once we excavate those things, they're never coming back. So it's great just to go back and make more uh, use of the... Uh, of the materials that are already sitting there on the shelves. And in some cases, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of bags of vertebrae. So, you know, we, we analyzed 115 or something here, but there's tens of thousands of potential samples out there of salmon and herring and ooligan. You know, these these fish, they, they preserve quite well in these shell midden sites that we get here in Bird Inlet and across most of coastal British Columbia. 
are those those middens are are those just refuse piles? Where where are these bones? Where have they been collected? Yeah, it's the midden. The word midden is not a good word, but it's what we use. And midden does mean refuse pile. I think it's a Danish word, right? And shellmen, we get these shell pile up piles, and and they are they're villages, and they're the refuse piles behind houses, in front of houses, and they're burial places, and they're meeting houses, and they're all those things, right? But what we see are shell because people are eating so much shellfish and dumping it around and kicking it around, and occasionally building it up into mounds and putting their houses on it, and so. These sites that I'm talking about, like these ancestral Slavitud village sites, you imagine in the past would have been a couple of plank houses, you know, big barn-like structures side by side, or, you know, maybe two, three, 10, 15, something like that. And shellfish, people eating and disposing stuff around them all, all for a long time. And by a long time, I mean 3,000 years, layer after layer after layer after layer after layer. These things can build up quite quickly, you know, sometimes, you know, a meter over just a couple of centuries. We do like to include a section on this show about eating fish when it's relevant and we're not talking about an endangered species or anything. I'd especially like to ask Michelle, we've talked a little bit about the ways people used to prepare and still prepare chum salmon. If you have a specific recipe, I'd love to hear it. I do not have a recipe. You can smoke it. You can bake it. You can can it. You can you can fry it. There's There's a million ways to prepare fish. And my preferred way is actually canned and i'm sure my dad's gonna kick me for it but um i prefer jarred salmon (laughs) do you like to eat it on anything like a cracker or just straight out of the jar i i could technically eat it straight out of the jar but with a cracker or on a sandwich or rice potatoes it's it's one of those things that i sort of just crave once in a while too like just basic fish and rice it sounds so plain, and I know my little cousins absolutely despise it, but it's something I go to. That sounds good. Jesse, do you have a, a favorite way to eat chum salmon? I like it smoked, like cold smoked, you know, lightly smoked, so it's not hard, but like still sort of a little bit juicy for sure. Um, it's hard to buy. You got to have friends that give you that stuff is my experience. So that's good. I think I've had, it, you know, made a red caviar as well with the eggs. I think that's pretty good. You have to have that in pretty small little quantities, though. I was wondering if each of you could just kind of speak to any kind of message you have for folks out there listening in terms of incorporating different ways of knowing. So we've talked a little bit about archaeology, genetics, oral history, and how all of that can kind of come together to paint a really full picture that can be used to inform management and conservation. Well, there's a lot there. It's a rich it's a rich body. You know, there's a whole wealth of information held in the, the, the collective minds of people who've been fishing this way for thousands of years. So I think you need relationships with people and in communities, right? You just can't poke and say, hey, what do you, how did you deal with chum, right? This is a part of a long-term process of uh, getting to know each other and getting to know what we're thinking and talking and, and, and dealing with. But, I, you know, I, I th- this paper is interesting that way that we've got geneticists and archaeologists and we've got First Nations authors and we've got people talking about the past and the present and, and into the future. So it wells of information from every single perspective, right? And anyone standing on its own would be... Uh, certainly a little less robust. If this was just a genetics paper, this would, you know, it probably wouldn't be making such a splash. Yeah. Michelle, what do you think? Something that I was taught is if you're not learning, hopefully you're dead. (laughs) You should be learning every day. You should be expanding your mind. You should be growing your brain. And so the educational part and being able to bring traditional oral history 
to paper in a scientific, respected manner. We're writing our own books. We're penning our history. We're putting our mark down on paper. So that's how come I see this as important stuff. No, like Franz Boas and these other ethnographers, they didn't show up and talk to any Slavitist people for whatever reason. They didn't. So Slavitists sort of as a people remained largely invisible uh, in the ethnographic and historical record, you know, occasionally lumped in with other people, occasionally told they don't exist. But here we are, right? And here we were for a long time. This is this is real. So, you, you know, now Slavitist has a chance to have their voice captured and shared with the, the broader communities. Yeah, that's great. Where can people go to learn more about this study about the Slavitooth people? So Slavitooth's webpage, twnation.ca, they've got links to all sorts of stuff that's going on in there and bits and pieces of, of, of history and culture information. Um, and, and the title of this paper is Open Access. So if you just Google it, you can pull it off of uh, Scientific Reports is where it was published. It's called uh, Indigenous Sex Selective Salmon Harvesting Demonstrates Pre-Contact Marine Resource Management in Burrard Inlet, British Columbia, Canada. Okay. Well, thank you too very much. It's been great talking with you. And as Michelle said, keep learning. And we hope that you enjoyed learning about the chum salmon today and some of these different ways of of knowing and keep learning about all the fish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore. Production management by Gabriella Montaguin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.